back to the Coaches Rising podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jeffrey Hall, who is the executive director of the Institute of Coaching. He's a coach himself. He's been coaching for over 20 years, and he's also an author. He recently wrote Flex, The Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World. I wanted to do two things in our conversation today. Because Jeffrey is so immersed in the field of coaching, I wanted to talk to him about what are you seeing that's emerging in the field? What challenges might you have for the field of coaching? And what trends are you seeing emerging? We talk about the science of coaching and how the field is maturing and also how there are marginalized worldviews that are potentially moving in and displacing the Western dominant worldview that has informed coaching. We also talk about Jeffrey's own development and his explorations around wisdom and why he feels that's so important. Also his explorations of regenerative paradigms, such as regenerative leadership. And we go into the one-on-one coaching work and the roles that Jeffrey plays with his clients. In our conversation today, Jeffrey talks about the importance of somatic work. He mentions teachers like Amanda Blake and Richard Strozzi Heckler, and they will be teaching in our online upcoming program called The Power of Embodied Transformation. It's all about how do you bring in the wisdom of the body and the soma into any coaching work that you do. And I think that is just crucial if you're wanting to support your clients in making lasting change. If you want to find out more about this program, over 400 coaches have enrolled so far. You can head to coachesrising.com forward slash power of embodied transformation. All right, that all being said, let's dive in. Here is the podcast with Jeffrey Hall. So I'm really glad to be joined with you, Jeffrey, today. How are you doing? How's things with you? I'm good. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Good to be here. I think what's cool is that uh, there's not many podcast guests that I get to meet face to face. And You've actually, you actually live in Amsterdam these days, so we had the the. I'm very grateful we had the chance to meet for a coffee, and we will have further chances to meet. So, uh, yeah, very pleased about that. How are you finding life in Amsterdam? Oh my God, I love it here. I just tried to not encourage people to move here. <laughs> I want to keep it a secret. <laughs> I tell all my friends in the U.S. they should move to Spain and Portugal because it's so nice there. <laughs> but actually, that <laughs> I'm just afraid they'll all move to Amsterdam. <laughs> it's such a wonderful city. It's so beautiful, friendly. I just, yeah, it's great. A little yeah. rain is good for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I always see is like, can the people from, I don't know, the, the the sunnier climates handle a couple of Northern European winters? You know, that's the real test. But yeah, but it seems I grew like up you've in taken Boston, to it. So it's very mild from compared to what I grew up with. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I know it's great. Well, yeah, I, we were just checking in a little bit before we hit the record button. And I think... Uh, what's really beautiful about our conversation today is that you, you know you're a highly experienced coach, and so I want to talk to you about your coaching work today and your book Flex as well. And uh, but you're also you know really active and immersed in the the kind of global coaching field in general, and so I think that's just fascinating to to kind of tune into a little bit 
And so I actually want to start there and then move into your coaching practice. Maybe, you know, once we've spent a bit of time in this global coaching field. And uh, I guess there's a few questions I have, um, but what I'm sat with right now is, is what, what are you seeing in the coaching industry right now? Uh, you know, it, it, we, you know, has said a lot this year, we live in challenging times or times of a lot of uncertainty. And I think coaches can play uh, an important role in our times. And I'm just curious for you, what are you seeing in the field in general that, that, that is a response to these times and excites you? And maybe you have a challenge for the field as well. So I've, I've you know, smooshed a few questions together there, but yeah. <laughs> well, I think it, it, in simple terms, it is a very fast growing field. And um, becoming accepted as a profession, which it wasn't when I first started, you know, uh, 20 years ago, if you said that you were a coach, people would be like, what is that? And where do you make money? And who is, you know, it, it was sort of considered a little bit woo woo. And um, so we've come a long way. And in a very short time, I often remind people that analogous to our evolution as a profession, we have the earlier profession of psychology and psychotherapy. And if you go back to the late 19th century, early 20th century, that's when you know Freud and Jung and others founded the field, but it took you know 50, 60, 70 years before there was some evidence base for the benefits of psychotherapy, which there really are these days. Um, and also for the field to become accepted as a helping profession that was valid and valued. I mean, for many years, it was really on the fringes, you know, dealing with really, um, you know, working with crazy people or super depressed, unfunctioning, non-functioning um, if you remember, it's a phrase we don't even use very much anymore, but people that went to psychologists were called neurotic. And how often do you hear that word anymore? You don't. Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, because it's sort of an insult, I think, to call someone neurotic these days. And then secondly, we're all neurotic. <laughs> so there's a way, there's a way where it's more questioning what is normal, um, but my point is that the field of psychology took many, many years before it became a real profession. And coaching, on the other hand, has exploded with that level of validity, scientific underpinnings, really, in only about 20 years. So um, it's exciting. It is uh, also becoming uh, what I would call democratized which has pluses and minuses, and we can talk about that. But the plus side of being democratized is that coaching is something that early on, when I first became a coach, was for only the elite, you know, athletes, actors, um, maybe the CEO or very senior executives. 
And it's only been in the last few years that the, the studies of human performance, positive psychology, the impact of the helping professions are really starting to um, get traction and organizations are beginning to recognize that coaching is a modality that actually is even more effective than training in most cases. Um, it can be a wonderful adjunct to training. It's not going to replace training, skills training, capacity training, competency training. But um, And there are now organizations that are really committed to bringing coaching to all levels of organizations. So, you know, I see that as a really good thing. Um, being taken seriously as a profession, having strong scientific underpinnings for what we do, um, reaching more people. These are all really positive um, evolutions of the coaching profession. Now, alongside that, you have uh, challenges. You know, there's the question that I'm grappling with a lot these days, which is globalization of coaching tends to come with a very heavy Western orientation. And that to me is a dual-edged sword. It's like, yes, there's a lot of benefits to allopathic medicine, to Western technologies, had a lot of good, done a lot of good in the world. Um, but it has a tendency to be a steamroller, marginalizing indigenous cultures, assuming even in large or you know huge countries like China and India and other places, but assuming that the Western model is the right one. And, you know, it even concerns me, like as an author, I was, I was super excited to have my book, which is about leadership and coaching and have it published in China, have it published in Mandarin. But there's another side of that, which is, you know, we're forwarding an agenda because my lens is a Western lens. So, you know, I get a call from the folks that run coaching organizations in Shanghai and they're like, we want you to do a webinar and you'll have like a hundred thousand people. And I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> you know, it's huge. All of which is great. I mean, I'm complimented and I'm honored to be asked to do that, but there's a shadow, which is what if I'm just bringing a Western lens to a culture that's very rich with other dimensions. Right. And are we listening to those dimensions like Taoism or Buddhism, or Eastern philosophy in general, or, you know, the indigenous um, song stories of Australia. You know, I just finished reading Tyson Yunkamporda's wonderful book, Santok. And, you know, there's just, just the shadow, I guess, what I'm, I just want us, as we get really excited with our growth and the opportunity and the, and the difference we can make in the world as coaches, let's just keep our heads on straight because there's shadow sides too. Um, another example being when you democratize, then you have scaling issues. How do you pay coaches when they're now working at all different levels in organizations? And so, you know, I don't necessarily have a lot of sympathy for my friends who are executive coaches who are used to be paid huge amounts of money to work with the C-suite. And now they're being asked to maybe take a cut and pay to work with all different levels in an organization. Um, but it brings up issues of scale and viability. And um, as someone who is the leader of an institute of coaching, as you know, you know, 
we foster education and growth for the for the coaches that want to develop their skills. So I'm super excited as our membership grows. But then I'm also aware that these coaching schools are graduating people like crazy. Like, and how are they all going to make a living? Is there really enough work to support that? Do you, so, do you think there is? I do. I do. Um, you know, and then there's the technology question, the AI coming into the mix, which also is complex. So at the end of the day, it's all great. I mean, I'm very excited to be in a place where I get to be in dialogue and participate in some of these um, growth challenges. Um, but I do, I guess, try to keep a balanced perspective. There's great things happening. And then there's also well, I'm a Jungian by training, so I'll use the word shadow. There's a shadow that we have to be always aware of. Yeah. Do, do you think that, I mean, I really resonate with what you're sharing too about the, there's a, it's a very Western model of coaching and what it is to be human and to perform, you know, some of these deep ideas baked into how we conceive of ourselves and what coaching is. And and the need for, you know, a more pluralistic kind of approach or, you know, including some of these marginalized voices. Do you think, and I'm, I'm curious because I know, you know, you mentioned science, you know, and that it's becoming more rigorous and that's important too. How do you see that almost, is there a contradiction between, you know, for example, Taoism and, and how would that become scientific? Yeah. So. Yeah, I guess the, the real question is, how do you think like the scientific movement within coaching would receive some of these different worldviews or approaches to coaching and what human, humans are? Do you think they would be receptive or do you think there could be a clash there between worldviews? It's a really great question. I think that uh, the the optimist in me would say that science eventually catches up. <laughs> People are going to be like, what? Isn't science ahead? And I'm like, no, science catches up. And what I mean by that is that practices like mindfulness have been around for thousands of years. <laughs> so, and they've been proven effective for thousands of years. Somatic work, um, you know, really integrating the mind-body um, to get the, the true potential of a human. Um, those are practices that in indigenous cultures and in some of the Eastern cultures, you know, they've included the body and they've included uh, contemplative practices, for example, for thousands of years. Um, you had a podcast guest recently that I loved listening to who was talking about re-indigenization. I love that word. Um, uh, she was a Chinese. Uh, uh, could be Spring Cheng, perhaps? Spring, yes. Yeah. Yes, it was Spring. Really powerful. I encourage everyone to listen to that podcast. Um, and yeah, so my, my feeling about it is that the, the evidence base with the Western mindset continues to expand and, you know, as we learn more about the brain, as we learn more about the mind-body connection through 
you know, our westernized empirical approaches, you know, like random trials of this, that, and the other thing and experimentation, you know, we actually wind up ultimately proving what many cultures have known for a long time. And, you know, maybe that's okay because then that gets credible. It becomes credible evidence that the executives who run Western organizations will take seriously, you know, um, Again, I, I think it, it from my positioning as a on a personal level, it harkens back to my training because unlike most psychologists, I did do a Jungian oriented depth psychology in my PhD. So, you know, I went to a doctoral program which was considered sort of a bit out there. You know, Jung himself was someone who studied Buddhism, who studied Taoism, who was looking at the archetypal patterns underneath Eastern and Western cultures. And, you know, he was considered a quack by a lot of scientists. And yet here we are only 30 or 40 years later, and the neuroscientists are absolutely validating what Jung was saying. You know, they are discovering through their fMRI studies that the human brain does work through patterning. It does work through a network connect, you know, connectivity. And there are underlying schema that humans are actually interconnected both intrapersonally, but also with the broader collective consciousness that, you know, Jung used that term collective consciousness. And I think a lot of people are like, what the hell is collective consciousness? Well, if you think about the studies that are being done in today's world by physicists, by neuroscientists, by neurobiologists, um, Dan, forgetting his name, I know you um, know who I'm talking about. Um, uh, Dan, Dan Siegel? Or... Yeah, Dan Siegel, the yeah. neurobiologist, psychiatrist by training. You know, he's he, those folks are doing work that is demonstrating the interconnectivity of all these themes, right? So that's what I mean by science catches up. And then yeah. when science catches up, it adds credibility. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because I think this taps into me, the conversation we've had quite a lot on the podcast, which I love because uh, in a way talking about the worldview that we may be transitioning from and where might we be transitioning to, and what does the world was it worldview of modernity? We could call it modernity. How does that conceive of what the self is, you know, and what it means, and and how's that how has that influenced the field of coaching, you know, and what we conceive of being a human being performing in an organization and notions of growth and success, uh, and yeah, I you know perhaps it's led to a kind of. Uh, this sense of a, like a hyper individual, you know, like that's, um, you know, really here to grow as an individual and perform and succeed. And perhaps some of those notions are actually being questioned at the moment and could lead to us collaborating and living in connection with one another and the world in different ways and perform, you know, that notion of performance changing greatly. And maybe this even like taps into some of your own work. You know, I was really enjoying reading your book about the, the notions of leadership and how that's changing. Perhaps that, you know, this, but I, I don't quite want to go there yet. Cause my question here is how do you, cause you know, you said we're training coaches, 
more and more people coming into the field. How, what do you think is, how could I formulate this question? It's just coming to me. It's like, yeah, based on our current conversation about, you know, indigenous cultures and things like that, and um, the world it, itself, like what do you think is the, are the most important approaches to coaching that coaches need to learn these days that need to be part of training, the training of coaches? I mean, what comes to mind question. is, is yeah, is, is for us as coaches to take full responsibility and accountability for the impact we can have. Um, recognizing that our role is to support others, leaders, teams. Um, if it's life coaching, it can just be, you know, the individual that you're working with. It doesn't have to be leadership focused, but you know, we are the mentors of our culture in a sense. And that's a really powerful role because if you ask anyone about their success in life, whether it's a billionaire or an athlete or an actor or an entrepreneur who's had success, you know, someone who's feels like they represent living up to their potential in the world, whatever that is. If you were to ask them, you know, how do you explain your success? What makes you so good at what you do? You know, I would say probably 90% of them, unless they're fully egotistical and think it's all them, but like most people will say, well, I had a great coach. My dad was a great coach, you know, um, Tiger Woods, the first one who say I had, I, I became the famous Tiger Woods because of my coach. Well, my coach was my dad. Well, we don't all have a dad like that, but most highly successful, fully realized, or whatever that means, kind of individuals and teams will will look back and say, yeah, part of that comes, a lot of that comes from coaching. So that's really great news. It means that those of us that are in the coaching profession have a lot of influence on the world. But that calls forth a lot of accountability. Because as you point out in many of your podcasts, the world is in a very disrupted state. And so if you put those two things together, then we have a lot of responsibility to try to make things better. And I would say if that's the case, and we're also a very fast growing profession, more and more people want to become a coach, then it behooves coaches to really do their homework to make sure they are developing themselves because it's the coach as a role model, right? Your client looks to you if you say well you need to work on your executive communication skills or you need to have more gravitas or you need to have more empathy or you whatever it is as the coach you better exemplify that you better be a model for that way of being for that way of seeing for that way of holding yourself in the world because that's what the client is going to look to you know, I'm sure that Tiger Woods looked to his dad for the way he held the club and the way he swung the club. So we have a really important role. And I don't mean to be hubristic about it. You know, we're not running the world. We're not president of the United States, but we're behind those that are. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's really important to view yourself as a, as a lifelong learner, as a coach. 
never can, you know, you may get your certifications from ICF programs or whatever, but never consider yourself finished. Always consider yourself in a learning mode. I know I do. And, you know, that connects back to what you were saying earlier, which is what are the, we want to be a science-based profession. We want to be evidence-based. We want to be grounded in credible Western science. But if we're really broadening our, our mindset and looking out over the horizon and having so what I call putting up the periscope, then we even have to look at what are the challenges of the modern Western mindset? What are the challenges of Western science? What are the blind spots, right? Um, and so that leads you to explorations, I think, as a, as a coach. And which is one of the things you do with your podcast. You bring in people that do bring a lot of different perspectives, which is super important for coaches to look at not just the traditional Western studies of performance and uh, um, neuroscience, but also the somatic side of things. You know, the brain is more than, I mean, human, um, human, potential is much more than just in your brain. It's also in your body. One of mm -hmm. my teachers always likes to say, he's a Aikido instructor. He always likes to say human beings are not a brain on a stick. You know, we are a body, we are embodied and there's wisdom in the body and there's wisdom outside the body in other cultures and other spheres. And um, I'm a big fan and I'll stop, but I'm a big fan also of Nora Bateson's work. And I think, you know, those listeners that may not be familiar with her, you know, she's the daughter of Greg Gregory Bateson and has kept up his really powerful work. Um, and I, she talks about what she calls warm data, which is sort of, she also uses the term transcontextualizing the way we see the world. And at the end of the day, it's really having a very deep fundamental shift in the way you see relationships about how we're all interconnected, that we're not separate, that that idea of an individual separate self is a Western narrative, thanks to our wonderful philosopher Descartes, <laughs> who we have lived with ever since. But there's much richer ways to see the way we are in the world than just through that one lens. And I love her phrase, warm data, because what she's doing with that is she's, she's saying that science is cold data, you know, and it's valuable. It is empirical. It is something you can objectify and study, but it's only half the equation because the one that's observing it is in relationship with whatever it's being observed. And that relationship is constantly changing, whether it's coach and client or, you know, electron and molecule, whatever it is, you know. Um, and when you start to step back and see that bigger picture, then you immediately start to recognize the importance of what systems thinking and recognizing that we as even just as individuals are part of a much bigger nested set of systems. And... I think about my leadership clients 
And if they were listening to this conversation, they'd be like, whoa, what the hell are you talking about? Systems thinking, warm data, what is that? Well, our challenge as coaches is to recognize that our clients are sponges. They want to learn. So with our curiosity and with our knowledge and with our learning, we can find the opening. Doesn't mean that we direct them. You know, it's, it's not, I'm here to teach you. I'm here to, you know, put these ideas in your brain. But when we, when we as coaches have that container of exploration and creativity and inquiry, then there may be an opening. A leader across the table from me may say, you know, Jeff, I'm really lost. I'm really not sure why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that is an opening for a much deeper conversation than just, well, you know, put your head down and see how you can double your revenues. <laughs> mm. Anyway, I meandered there a lot, but get the basic idea. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And I, I think what you're speaking to is actually really important. I think that is one of the things that's changing, at least as I talk to more coaches and in my own experience is that shift from being, and you mentioned Dan Siegel, he talks from me to we and right. and that sense of like my me being related to others becoming an equal experience in my in my kind of moment to moment experience um as being an individual so that i am made of my like right now you know joel and jeff you know are kind of cohering in a sense like i'm 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 actually being formed my identity is being formed by being in relationship with you and and as i as i name that in my experience it's like that that kind of comes to the foreground more and there's a sense of intimacy it's not just an idea but it's a it's a felt experience, and so uh, yeah, I, I'm really pleased you're naming that because I think that systemic relationship focus is so important for coaching, you know, uh, in in these times. And um, a lot of it is us recognizing the influence that we have. It's really powerful. I mean, there's probably very few people that influence others other than mom and dad and your priest and your siblings and your best friend and your coach right so that's a big that's a big job yeah and, and own that yeah 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 um I, I, there's a there's a number of questions bubbling up but one i'm going to ask you then you said being a lifelong learner is important what are, what are you learning at the moment? Like, do you find yourself drawn into a particular learning? Uh, it could be a training or just a field of study that's really exciting you, you know, part of your learning. Oh gosh, there's always lots. <laughs> um, but in, in, yeah, it's interesting if I step back and I reflect, I would say there's, Maybe it's because of where I am in my career, having been in the field for a while. Um, there's sort of two ends of a spectrum that I find myself being really drawn to. One is um, being in dialogue with people that I consider wise and asking myself, what does it mean to be wise? What is wisdom? You know, it's great to be smart. It's great to be educated. It's great to be 
filled with knowledge, but is that really wise? So this is an exploration that I'm very um, pulled into right now. Um, you know, what? how do you actually evolve from a place of being knowledgeable to being wise? What is the distinction? And I don't necessarily have the immediate answer, but I'm just, it's something that I'm doing a lot of reading and connecting with wise people <laughs> to try to learn around that. Um, I think there's something in there about recognizing that if you want to enter a space called wisdom, it's a paradox because it requires you to become uh, less knowledgeable. You actually have to let go of knowing in order to be wise. Wisdom is a born of humility, I think. So this is something that's exciting me these days to explore. And then at the other end of the spectrum, um, I'm learning so much about the up and coming field of regenerative uh, design and regenerative leadership and regenerative work. And I say at the other end of the spectrum, because I'm learning most of that from millennials and Gen Z and young folks that are just, you know, absolutely immersed in this space. And I am such a student. Um, I went through a program called uh, training with an organization called Regenesis based out of San Francisco, Santa Fe. Um, and I was probably 20 years older than most of the folks in the group that I was in. Um, but I loved being a student, just learning about, you know, moving beyond, like, is there something even beyond sustainability or eco-sustainability that they're calling regeneration? And what does that even mean? Um, it's becoming very common now in the places of agricultural, regenerative agriculture and design, architecture, um, but it's not in the mainstream yet. I mean, if I sit across the table from my CFO at a major bank and I say, is your company becoming regenerative? He'll look at me with, and get glazed eyes. Like, what the hell are you talking about? We're not, you know, we're not growing corn here. Um, so there's a long way to go for us to bring a regenerative mindset into traditional corporate environments. Um, Partly because it's just uh, somewhat esoteric for a lot of the folks that run those organizations, but also because it may call into question the very business model on which they're founded. Um, capitalism itself is a degenerative, extractive baseline of you know the way it's structured. So, you know, it's it's very potentially threatening for a lot of mainstream. Um, organizations to try to consider moving toward a regenerative um, approach, which is, you know, at, at its core about being life affirming and being humble enough to recognize that we are part of nature, we are not controlling nature. And I mean, there are so, so anyway, yeah, I, I've been super excited to look at to learn in this space. And it is, it, I love your question because it does make me realize that on the one hand, I'm hanging out with all these wise older folks that are teaching me about wisdom. And then on the other hand, I'm hanging out with all these really wise young folks that are teaching me about regenerative principles. And what I hope to do in my next book is find a way to bring some of the key themes of regeneration into the mainstream. 
because I think it's time. We're, we're running out of time on this planet. We have to move. We have to change the way we, um, we have to change the way we tread on the earth or else we're not going to be on the earth. And as good friends of mine always remind me, um, the eco environmentalist friends of mine, they're like, the earth doesn't really care about us, Jeff. You know, if we become one of the many extinct species, the earth will be just fine. <laughs> she will go forward. In fact, she'll probably bring forth something even more interesting than humans. So, you know, this idea that we are controlling and going to fix mother earth, I think we have it backwards. So yeah. anyway, yeah, those, it's are, those really... are the things that are exciting me like wisdom i think is such an important topic and i i've written it down i want to come back because I, I i hear that becoming also some other people i really respect starting to talk about wisdom as being like a, a not only just an important inquiry but actually like a leverage point you know if we could actually you know like uh, john viveki talks about yeah we know we know where to 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 learn to go to uh, get information we know where to go i've got what the other the other uh phrase he uses but it's like to go to get education uh to, to learn but where do we go to become wise you know that is just lacking in general and if we could if we could create these places that could make a difference so i want to come back to wisdom if we have time but this thing about read because i think it kind of segues into your coaching practice as well you know for me this is another one of these fields that is part of uh, the the worldview shift we're going through, right. you know, where we're starting to recognize that, yeah, capitalism for the the goods that it might have brought into the world. Now we have a kind of crony capitalism that's taken over, and it's extractive and degenerative, and even is really enmeshed with, yeah, how do we see what the self is, you know. Um, you know, what is the function of a self and, and so on. Um, and I'm curious for you, like, how do you find uh, your coaching clients? You kind of alluded to this, like, do you, do you feel that you can bring this in right now? Because it is perhaps part of the shift. Maybe it's even a question of like, what is the what is your role as a coach? You know, are you even there to be somewhat of a provocateur, um, you know, to some of the CEOs you coach? Um, yeah, yeah. Do you find that they're there? Because I, I imagine there's a there's also an amazing business case for becoming a regenerative organization as well. But yeah. Do, yeah, do you find that you're able to kind of start having these conversations? And and then we're moving into a conversation about your your coaching in general. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you you have to go back to square one and always remember the fundamental, which is that the best coaches will always start with where the client is. It's not our job to determine the agenda. The client will set the pace, will bring the question, will bring the paradox or the challenge. So our role as the coach is to be the receiver, the receptivity of that. But that said, many of my clients are having what I would call existential moments. And they're not likely to have them in front of their board. <laughs> they're not likely to share them with their vice president of sales. You know, they're more likely to share them with the coach. 
And by existential questions or existential moments, I think um, I'm pointing to questions of values, questions of meaning, asking, okay, so I've built this wonderful company or I've made it up to the biggest office in the building and I now have my name in gold on the lettering. You know, it's like, okay, what? Why did I do that? What is the point? What's the meaning behind it? Um, I feel like that we've evolved in a good way in the business world um, from that time earlier in my career when we would do like mission statements and vision values offsites with our clients. That's when I first started coaching, you know, the CEO and his direct, his or her, it was usually his, would, would take his offsite with a facilitator like me to craft the vision, you know, and they'd spend the day working on the words, you know, we want to be the trusted number one best thing that ever came down the slice cake. You know, it's like, and after four glasses of wine, they were like, whatever, Jeff, you just write it. You know, I mean, they didn't, they, they knew they needed a vision. They knew they needed a mission, but they didn't take it really that seriously. And most importantly, they didn't personalize it. And we've come away. We've come a long way since then. I think in most of my leadership client conversations, it's okay for me to be a bit provocative after I create enough safety and after I'm clear on what their inquiry is to say, well, what is valuable to you? What is, what is most meaningful for you? What is the legacy? That's one of my favorite questions. What is the legacy you want to leave behind? And, you know, those are thought provoking moments for someone in a is for all of us. Right. And so that leads to questions of meaning making, you know, part of your role as a leader is to create meaning. Well, if you're creating meaning, you're foisting or fostering your values into a team or into an organization, it behooves you to do some deep reflection on what they really are. What are those values? And so that is quite often an opening for what is the impact your organization is having in the world? You know, are you aware of what's going on in the supply chain? And do you think through the implications of the folks in Bangladesh that are, you know, making the t-shirts or whatever, you know? So I can't say that all my clients are there. They're not all at a place where they're deeply reflecting, but more and more of them are. And the pandemic, you know, it's unfortunate that we had to have a global sort of meltdown. Um, and obviously there were a lot of um, very painful loss that came from, that impacted a lot of people. Um, but it also maybe was a wake up call for a lot of leaders. I mean, we did a study at the Institute of Coaching. We did a research project where we had um, 35 of our senior coaches interview their clients about how they were impacted by the pandemic. And the result is really heartening because a lot of them started to say, yeah, I've had to step back and think what is most important. I realize that the well-being of my people is actually maybe more important than how much money we make or equally important. Um, so those kinds of conversations have become more, more accessible, more readily available to a lot of leaders coming out of the pandemic. So there's an opportunity and I hope it won't be lost. We may have to have another pandemic before we make real progress, but um, 
and then connecting the dots between the individual as a leader, as a self, as you said, and the ecosystem or the broader systemic implications of what they do in the world. Um, and as I said, the science catches up, right? So the physicists and the neuroscience scientists are beginning to realize that, you know, especially the quantum physicists have really moved forward, recognizing that what we do on a very micro scale has very macro major implications across the planet. And um, just the weather patterns, you know, the scientists that do climatology and study weather have really recognized that what's going on thousands of miles away can show up in your backyard. So if you take that as a metaphor for the role you play as a leader and the implication of what your influence is, um, I mean, one of the really exciting conversations I often get to have these days with my leader clients is for them to realize that they have much more impact on the world than they even realize. They tend to have a relatively myopic view of themselves. You know, I'm the senior vice president of sales for XYZ car manufacturing company, and I sell drill bits or whatever, you know, and I got to get my numbers and, you know, but they are human beings. So it's often in a coaching conversation that I'll be able to insert the question, you know, do you feel like you're really making a difference in the way, in the world, the way you had hoped to when you were a child? question like that um yeah it's a bit provocative but i don't know i think we have a responsibility to be provocative after we've created safety and after we've you know nurtured the relationship so that we are you know in alignment with what the client wants to accomplish but eh, we're poking you know we have this climate coaching alliance that you're probably aware of that mm -hmm. a lot of the coaching organizations have signed up for. And it's, it's somewhat controversial because there are coaches, they'll go to these round tables that we have and there'll always be one or two coaches that are like, are you sure that coaches should really be involved in discussing the climate with the client? I mean, isn't our job just to help the client become more successful and, I, I mean, my colleague Eve Turner is so good at this, um, describing this, but, and, and others that created these programs. But, you know, at the end of the day, you don't really have to uh, poke at your client about the climate or about the, you just have to ask them, what do they think about the impact of their work in the world? Are they aware of the ripple effect? And, yeah. That's often enough to get people thinking. And that's maybe our role. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. And uh, I was talking with Peter Hawkins the other day, who also, ah, I think, oh gosh. plays this kind of brings this in beautifully. And Eve will also be on the podcast at some point as well. So, um, yeah, that's beautiful. And do you think? I mean, we're describing in a way like a role that a coach can play here, you know, in this kind of bringing in these perspectives and perhaps, you know, having people move out of the habituation that they found themselves in around their life path, you know, 
it's an amazing role that a coach can play. And I'm curious for you around other roles that coaches might play. You you might find yourself playing, really. And that's the question I'm asking. Uh, for example, the, the, the need to even take a kind of healing uh, kind of uh, perspective with a client, you know, um, helping clients to just kind of maybe contact themselves in ways that they've they've not before uh, so that a kind of integration can begin to take place, maybe reclaiming, you know, them, themselves. And, and in a sense, maybe therefore connecting to something, something more essential in them. I'm just curious what you think about that kind of role. I find that becoming more common, you see, like, whereas maybe in the past it was like, there was a, yeah, no, he, the word healing is definitely not for coaches. That's a therapeutic mm. word. Yeah. Okay. So I have a lot to say about this. I'll try to be quick <laughs> as a psychologist by training. Um, yeah. And I mean, I did my PhD thesis on um, group healing and, um, and, and it was all about uh, what makes what the, I did a study basically of group dynamics, what makes a group a healing container Um and the, the punchline is that is what led me to leadership because at the end of the day, all the groups that I studied, whether or not they created a healing container always had to do with leadership. The behavior, the role modeling, the shared leadership, the whatever, you know, the hierarchy, all of those different components. So anyway, this is a question near and dear to my heart. Um, and I think the first thing that comes up for me when I think about healing and our role as coaches is this wonderful work that's being done around post-traumatic growth. Um, Richard Tedeschi is probably one of the lead uh, thought leaders of this world. Uh, we had him on a podcast recently and his work is just so fabulous. Um, and basically what he was sharing, it was a little controversial for some, but I was just very moved with was that the world is in a painful place and most people are traumatized on some level. The pandemic was trauma traumatizing. And, you know, even if you weren't traumatized by the pandemic, you, all you have to do is turn on the news, in the, especially in the US and the latest massacre and the latest war. And, you know, here we are, I say the US, but here we are in Europe and we're right down the street from a major conflagration that's happening and people are dying every day. And so how, how can you not be traumatized? Um, and what he was sharing is that there's a role for coaches to be what he calls an expert companion. And I love this phrase because it is so simple and we tend to overcomplexify everything, you know, that you have to have five letters of PhD and SBR and OCT and ICF certified this, that, and the other thing after your name in order to have credibility to be a coach or a psychologist, all of which is probably true on some level. But at the end of the day, what Richard said about post-traumatic growth, which is the shift from post-traumatic stress to metabolizing and integrating and healing, to use your word is just support and listening and being there. Sometimes it's just a hug, you know, it's just connection. And he was just saying that 
to a group, you know, a webinar with 500 coaches that are all looking for the science and the evidence and the, yeah, I want to get the credential and how do I get the training? And so here's Richard on the webinar and he's just saying, you know, sometimes I just go for a walk with my client and I just listen and I just sit with them and I just breathe and I just be. And it transforms the space. We move from our head into our heart together. And we go from being filled with trauma and complexity and suffering to looking straight ahead at the flower that's on the ground and realize how incredibly beautiful that flower is. And if we didn't stop and we didn't breathe and we didn't get quiet, we wouldn't see the flower. So, you know, I'm on a webinar. <laughs> He's talking like that. I'm like, I'm almost in tears. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, the coaches are going to all send us notes about how this was not a good use of their time. <laughs> but, of course, it was exactly the opposite. 90% of the people on the webinar were so moved. They're like, yeah, let's go back to the core of what we're trying to do as coaches. We're just, we're really human beings looking to support other human beings to heal, to become whole, to move through our pain and suffering, and to restore our sense of connection and optimism. Um, and I, I would say as a Jungian, get back on the path of individuation. You know, that was my, one of my favorite Jungian terms. Um, so I told yeah. you I have a, a lot to say about healing, but I'll stop. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, maybe this is also where I, AI comes in for me a bit as well, but the it's understandable for a lot of coaches that they want more and more knowledge and to be up to date on the neuroscience and the you know the rigorous studies that are being done and then trainings that support that and and yet you know what you're describing here is just this kind of you know human to human contact which for me is both you know indigenous to who we are as as humans you know we we are relational beings and it's a whole art to that kind of realm of of being with people that I think is one of the frontiers of coach training, you know, that it's, it's not per se about um, learning a process and a theory that's all still valuable, but it's about what is it to be in that kind of raw unmediated unfolding experience with another human being where you're highly attuned to one another. And, you know, you can begin to perceive things in them that they might not even be aware of. Of course, you know, I would never say this is who you are, but I might offer what I'm sensing to them in a way that they can, oh, yeah, that's it. So, I mean, I just love what you're talking about right now. And I think, yeah, this is this is one of those uh, areas where it's a difference that makes a difference for me. I totally agree. Yeah. No. Um, and it gets back to, I think, this theme of wisdom, which I'm, you know, exploring and a student of, I guess I would say, which is that it's, it is important to become knowledgeable. I mean, I'm a voracious reader. I know you are. 
I'm voracious um, listener to these podcasts and I love conversation with really smart people so I can learn. But wisdom, I think, comes from being able to set it all aside. There's those moments when you you just have to be curious, present, and that's when the wisdom comes through. Actually, uh, I, I would hate to go through our whole conversation without mentioning your book as well, uh, because I think it ties into this part of our conversation a lot. You know, the... Um, this book you wrote called Flex, and uh, I've really been enjoying it, um, not only as a coach, but actually as someone who, you know, as coaches rising grows, you know, uh, finding myself in more and more of these uh, a place of leadership, you know, and the, the challenges and the struggles that come with that and the, and the joys of two. And I'm what I really appreciated about your writing was that you were talking about the con- you know contextual nature of leadership and that you offered you know i think there's a lot there's a lot in the book so you know but i think one thing i would invite you to share a bit about is the 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 notion of alpha and beta leaders and you know you also had this acronym fierce but could you speak into why you felt the need to define, to distinct, you know, make those distinctions basically and uh, what they're about. And we can maybe talk about how you work with them with people as well. Yes. No, I'm happy to, I'm happy to um, summarize it. Um, I will caveat this by saying that I think that uh, like every other project of this type, when you, um, set your heart to create a, a product, for example, like a book or a training or something. Um, if you're not, if you're a learner, which I am, you know, and a constant sort of growth mindset kind of guy, um, I've already come to see that even though this book has only been out for a year and a half, two years, it's already somewhat outdated for me. <laughs> um, and the reason I say that is because I look back on this distinctions of this alpha and beta that I created in the, in the framework, which came out of the research with, you know, talking to lots and lots of coaches about the evolution of their clients and the style leadership styles. So it, it, it's valid. Um, but I've kind of already moved on to what I call meta leadership instead of alpha and beta leadership. <laughs> so yeah. it's just interesting to reflect, um, but Please feel that, free to name that as well. To yeah, what meta? Yeah, leadership. I mean, the reason I say meta is because I think this is also a false dichotomy. This alpha beta, and I think I actually said it at one point in the book, which is, it's valuable to know the distinctions, but then you need to sort of move on from the distinctions. Um, you know, left brain, right brain, and Daniel Kahneman, system one, system two thinking, all of those things are all very valuable because it gets you to go to another level of. Um, perception around the way we operate as human beings, like, and gives you a broader portfolio um, to see options, basically. Um, But it's also a limit, you want to recognize the limitation of it right away, that it's not the be all and end all. So anyway, that's sort of all preface. Um, The reason that 
alpha beta got created is because over a period of time, I started to notice that my clients were changing. You know, when I first started coaching, it was mostly white men in executive roles, and they had been through leadership training to be very authoritative and decisive and visionary and all of those wonderful things that we associate with a traditional patriarchal style of leadership. And yet in the last five or six years, I mean, the colors and flavors and cultures of those leaders was changing dramatically. You know, more and more people from different parts of the world were becoming leaders in my in global client organizations. And it is true that women are are by far not a majority yet in leadership roles in organizations, but they are breaking through the ceiling. And so are people of color. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that I, as a coach, do not encourage my clients that are of people of color or women or any other, you know, non-white male um, background. I do not encourage them to necessarily follow the script, become decisive, become an extrovert, become visionary, become whatever, you know, that there are a lot of other ways to skin the cat called leadership. And that, in fact, sometimes when your goal is creativity or innovation, or getting the best out of everyone on the team, then being decisive and directive is exactly what you don't want to do. You really want to be leading from behind. You really want to be more of a certain leader. You really want to be collaborative. So that's what led to my creating that framework. Um, and then in order to become practical, uh, I did a lot of focus groups and surveys and interviews with many, many coaches, because of course, at the Institute of Coaching, I have access to like 5,000 coaches. Um, I didn't talk to 5,000, but I talked to a lot and basically tried to distill some of the key behaviors and, and domains in which this more flexible way of showing up were, was most applicable. And that's where flexible decision-making, more intentional communication style, which means really a broader communication style than just data and facts and, you know, including storytelling and empathi and empathizing and, um, and then emotional intelligence, you know, regulating and responding to the emotions of others, um, collaborating, uh, being real, showing up with a level of, of competency and stoicism at times, but also vulnerability. This became particularly relevant during the pandemic. Um, you know, a lot of leaders who really were, would struggle with vulnerability um, came to recognize that if they were going to create an environment of well-being for their teams during a pandemic, they had to have humanity. They had to be a little more vulnerable. So, I mean, my book came out just as the pandemic hit and it, these kinds of qualities, you know, that's this level of agility is really what I was pointing to um, with the, the framework that you mentioned. And then the final thing that is to me really key in the book, which I know you resonate with because I've um, participated in programs with a number of your teachers like Amanda Blake and Richard Strozzi Heckler and others. I really wanted to have a whole section of my book on somatic component of leadership, how we show up energetically, not just from the neck up, not just in our words, not just in linguistics, but in, in um, the way we hold ourselves. And 
there's a number of case studies, as you know, in the book of leaders who really were demonstrating their contradictions, having the best intentions, having the right words, but then, you know, leaning back in their chair and sticking their feet up on the desk. And, you know, there's nothing that signals arrogance more than that kind of behavior. Um, so somatics are really important. How you carry yourself in your body and simple things like eye contact. And that trans and that translates over into the video world, right? In learning how to be on screen with people in a in a Zoom room. You know, I have many clients who are like, how do I create psychological psychological safety when we're all in little boxes? <laughs> and the principles are the same. The rules really aren't different. It's a somatic experience, you know, d d but where are your hands? Do you even have hands? If you never show your hands, then you don't have hands on a video. And are you looking at people? Are you present with them? So anyway, the somatic component of uh, leadership to me was really important to include. Um, you said about meta, you've got this new kind of aspect of meta leadership. What's that? I mean, meta, meta leadership, I think, will be an integration. You know, it's like uh, moving beyond the dichotomies and the bifurcations. There are simple ones that I already mentioned, you know, left brain, right brain, which the neuroscientists have all told us there is no such thing as left brain, right brain. The brain is a network. It's a neural network. And it has, yes, there's an amygdala and yes, there's a prefrontal cortex, but the networks are, you know, um, and the brain itself is throughout the whole body, right? You know, there's the parasympathetic system goes throughout your whole system. And so when you say I have a a oh, hard decision to make. I can feel it in my gut. It's like, yeah, there's a brain in there. Um, so for me, meta just means, um, yeah, stepping up above those splits and the way we see and operate in the world. The most fundamental one of all being the split between self and other. You know, really... If we're ever going to become regenerative, if we're ever going to really move as a species back into a relationship with each other and with the earth, we're going to have to move beyond that mindset that says we are separate. Um, you know, Charles Eisenstein is like the gift that keeps on giving in terms of writing about this so eloquently. Um, and I encourage anyone listening to this podcast, if you have not read his work, to please step into it because it's so beautiful but that's to me the core you know that's like fundamental meta being um and then meta modernism you know moving beyond sort of this die this bifurcation of postmodern versus modern um there's a wonderful book called the listening society that i think you and i might have talked about this um where heinze freinacht looks at nordic community-based um political ideologies and social and developmental um, psychologies, but all of which is really just about moving beyond these splits. I think if I had to narrow yeah. it down to a simple concept. And one thing I've been playing around with as we kind of move towards the end of our conversation is, um, you know, like we talk about regenerative, but like what's an, a generative ontology 
versus a prescriptive ontology. And I think in the sense of like, yeah, where, where do I, you know, get an idea like alpha and beta and then, you know, I, I kind of like simplify that and kind of impose it upon situations in a way that closes down my attunement to what's actually emerging, which is kind of what I hear you saying. Yeah. It's like, which is why uh, I've already moved on from my own book. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. But, but then again, you know, the distinctions are powerful in that they, they, they kind of um, create a way of seeing, you know, and so if you can hold them in that way yep. so that they become generative, you know, you, you can then, sense into well what is appropriate here yeah it's not always about being being beta you know like it isn't one one prescriptive idea there's a you know there's a like contextual for me if that would be another thing that i would really invite coaches into you know exploring is like the contextuality of leadership and how um you know we, we talked already about there's you know western we've grown up in a western world of what it means to be a leader, but there is there's a real there's a whole world out there of of different kind of ontological stances we could take, you know, uh, and and they afford different ways of seeing and being in the world, and and it's highly contextual, and and so yeah, coming back to wisdom, perhaps you know how can we how can we both inform ourselves and yet also generate a way of being that that is is like curious and and like open, like we're not full of just prescribed notions. We're actually, we've, we've gone beyond that. So I think if of, we're going to survive as a species, we're, we're going to at some point recognize that our greatest strength is that we are meaning making beings. We create meaning. And when you create meaning, that means that whatever you learned is valuable to a point, and then you need to continuously grow and move on. So the reason I came up with Alpha Beta is because before that, before, not just before my book, but, you know, up until recently, it was all alpha. Everybody who wanted to be a leader had to become alpha. That was the norm. Well, I wanted to break that. I wanted to create a new level of meaning and said, no, you could be beta. Well, that's very different. Okay, so now we could be alpha or beta. So we move to another level. And now I wanna say, yeah, but we can even go beyond alpha beta to meta. And what does that mean? So we're continuously creating meaning and entering into new worlds. And that's our gift. So, you know, I, I guess what I always look to do, and maybe this is the exploration of wisdom, going back to maybe to Jung, but it's like, always ask yourself, what is the shadow side? Like what is, there's benefits to so much, like artificial intelligence and all these things that are happening. There's so much benefit, but what is the shadow? Let's be aware of the limitation. So if we have an awareness about it, we can, potentially evolve past it we can create new levels of meaning and for example you know cap we talked a little bit about capitalism well capitalism has had great positive impacts on so many levels right people live longer they're you know the great middle class that's come to so much of the west that's now coming to china that 
you know, there, there's no question that there's been benefits, but there's a huge shadow because of what we're doing to the earth and the marginalized populations that get left out of the mix. So if we can stay awake to that, maybe that's how we stay wise. It's a beautiful invitation. And I think a kind of nice way to bring our conversation to a close. And so I just want to express my gratitude. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, I, I kind of had the intention of sense making and also plugging into, you know, what are you seeing and doing as a coach as well as, yeah, the wider coaching world. And I feel like we've done that. So thank you so much. And yeah, part one, let's call this part one. Sure, we've got a long one to talk about. I love that. To be continued. Yes. I mean, you and I are both, um, I mean, in a sense, I see us as sort of brothers in arms. We are committed to our profession and to growing as individuals, but also to um, supporting all the coaches that we work with so that they can really make a difference in the world. So it's exciting to have compatriots along the journey. <laughs> Nice. Yeah, it is. And I actually want to make sure where, where can we find out more about your work as well? I know you're, you're doing different projects. Yeah. Um, well, Institute of Coaching. Mm. So Institute of Coaching, all one word, dot org, um, where I'm the executive director. You can always learn about um, all the different things that we are doing there, whether it's research or education. Um, my own work is on LinkedIn or jeffreywhull.com jeffrey no no w i think i think of jeffreyhull.com yeah, yeah. good if i knew my own website right <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll we'll link to that as well and uh so people can see that on the show notes so okay. yeah thanks jeff thank you that's great here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again. If you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well. And I'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.